was stunned by reading something over the past couple weeks. The internet existed in 1988, if not earlier. Did you know that? Y'all, maybe you knew that. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't know it existed until 1995 when I was in high school. That's not part of the sermon, but that surprised me. Um, November 3rd, 1988 was a key moment in internet history, for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing. I read this in the Washington Post. It was a fascinating article on the internet and internet security and what the original um, participants, the, the early adopters of the internet, what they thought about it. And on November 3rd, 1988, Robert Morris, he was a graduate student at Cornell, invented and unleashed the Internet's first worm. It was the Internet's first worm, a computer virus that would spread uh, from one computer to another through the Internet. Um, It would take up shop in that computer, and from that computer it would spread to others, and it very quickly spread through what was at the time a very small Internet community. It was mostly techies, um, mostly on college campuses, maybe a few thousand people, we're using the internet as opposed to today where millions and millions and millions of people are using the internet. Until that day, November 3rd, 1988, no one had really considered the possibility that someone would use the internet for evil things. Of course, now we look at it and we're like, why wouldn't they? But at the time, it, it hadn't crossed their minds. Well, one person quoted in the article said this, The majority of people had some tie to computation for their jobs. Now, I wouldn't say that we trusted each other, but there was more of a community sense of caring for the stability and appropriate use of computing systems. There was a community sense of care for how we use the Internet. So when Robert Morris, a a full participant in this community, part of the caring community that they thought they had, unleashed this virus, well, there was outrage. Why? How could he do something like this? Really, nothing had been done on Internet security at this point because of the common good. Who would, who would want to break that? It's not that we didn't think about security. We knew that there were untrustworthy people out there, and we thought that we could exclude them. We knew that there were untrustworthy people out there, but we thought that we could exclude them. I want us to consider this story in light of our reading in Mark's Gospel this morning. They thought that the purity of the Internet could be preserved by excluding the impure. They never considered the possibility that the impure might already lie within. That's the reality that Jesus points us to this morning. Same one discovered by these early internet adopters. It's not the things on the outside that defile us, but the things on the inside. The problem of evil lies primarily in our own hearts. And thus, the solution cannot come from avoiding evil. You, it's in you. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And so we're defiled. We have defiled hearts, if you will. And the only solution to our defilement 
is a clean heart, is a clean one. So that's where we are this morning. We're going to be in Mark chapter 7. Please, please, please open it up. I love it, love it when you follow along. I think it, it helps me and it helps you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's certainly some red ones in front of you if you didn't bring yours with you. Um, and, and frankly, if you don't have one at all, I'll give you one. So just come and find me after the service. I will gladly give you a Bible this morning. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Jesus is with his disciples, um, and they are eating in the presence of some scribes from Jerusalem. Let's read this briefly. 1 through 5. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? So the Pharisees are confronting Jesus and his disciples. Now, these aren't any old Pharisees. These are the Pharisees who are also scribes, who are also from Jerusalem. These aren't your run-of-the-mill Galilean Pharisees. And so they have come from Jerusalem. They have come out to Galilee to investigate Jesus and his disciples. And they see the disciples eating with, as Mark very specifically says, with defiled hands. Now, this isn't just unsanitary hands. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about unclean hands, impure hands, defiled hands. The Pharisees would insist that hands were ritually cleansed before eating. That the pots and the cups were ritually cleansed before eating so that they could remain pure, so they could remain undefiled. And so if you have been out and about and using your hands and walking through the marketplace, you almost certainly would have come into contact with unclean, impure things and people. And thus you needed to ceremonially cleanse yourself before you could eat, lest some remnant of the unclean thing or person got inside of you. And so the Pharisees had developed these traditions to keep everybody ritually clean, so you don't get these things inside of you. Now, the root of this is Old Testament law. Um, perhaps maybe Leviticus, I think it's chap uh, chapters 15 and 17, have lots to say about ritual cleanliness. There were um, practices you were supposed to do. There was food you could eat and food that you couldn't eat that was intended to keep everyone clean. Now, the purpose of this was, was to help preserve Israel as a distinct people, not a people that was separate from the world, not a people that was isolated, but as we read in Deuteronomy this morning, a distinct people that would be attractive to the pagan cultures around them. But they needed to be preserved, preserved from the evil, from the evil um, actions of the, the people around them. Because the, the fact of the matter is, God knew that if Israel just jumped right in with all the nations around them, they would very quickly become just as bad as all of those folks. And so they were given the law and, and some of these 
restrictions and purity restrictions. And so the Pharisees took that, these biblical restrictions, and did the very thing Deuteronomy told us this morning not to do. They added rules to them. They said, look, if we follow the law, then we will be clean, then we will be pure, and then perhaps God will bless us, and so we need to follow the law, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the law, and we're going to put a fence around it. We're going to put a barrier around it. We're going to create rules so you can't even come close to breaking the law, okay? So, for instance, one of the laws was keep holy the Sabbath. You've heard that, right? And so the question is, what does it mean? to keep holy the Sabbath. Well, it, you know, for the Pharisees, certainly it means you shouldn't work on the Sabbath day. But what is work? And you see, they keep asking these questions, and so they defined it. To work on the Sabbath day, um, among other things, means that you take more than 3,000 steps. If you take 3,000 steps, you're okay, you're not working. If you take 3,001 steps, you've gone too far. So if you stray a little too far from home, you're out of luck. You see how that works? They created these extra rules, these oral traditions, that would preserve the law, that would keep people from breaking it. And so when it came to food, heaven forbid you accidentally brush up against a pig and then eat with that hand. Are you not ingesting the unclean food? And so they have all these cleansing rituals. But these aren't in the law. These aren't God's commandments. These are... um, additions to the law that the Pharisees have come up with. And so they asked Jesus, why do your disciples eat with defiled hands? Why are they encroaching upon the law like this? Now Jesus, obviously, as he always does, can see straight through them. Um, Frankly, if I was having a conversation with Jesus, I'm not sure I would confront him. Um, He's pretty... He's pretty direct and to the point. And so if we go to um, verse 6, let's see, what does he say to these Pharisees? He said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. They said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. The problem with these traditions, the problem with these Pharisaic rules, is that they were focusing on the traditions of men at the expense of worshiping God. They were all about the traditions, but their hearts were far, far from God. They honored Him with their lips. They didn't know him. And so no matter how pure the Pharisees' food, no matter how cleansing their rituals, at the end of the day, the hearts of men could not be changed by outward obedience. Your heart cannot be changed by being a good Christian. It can't. In fact... These rules of the Pharisees would actually trump the law of God. And Jesus gives an example. We didn't, we didn't read it this morning, but he gives an example of, of following a tradition of man that actually negated a law of God. 
And so instead of, instead of being drawn closer to God by being so obedient, they were actually pushed away from Him. They were pushed away, they became more distant from God, and they led their followers in that direction as well. And so Jesus rebukes them, right? I mean, rightly so. He calls them hypocrites. He goes back to Isaiah and he said, look, Isaiah, he's writing about you guys. You honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. They worshiped their own traditions instead of the Lord. I'm going to pause here for a moment and, and say this. I think this rebuke from Jesus is worthy of our really careful consideration this morning. This is an easy trap for us to fall into. Um, we have traditions, and traditions aren't bad. Look, look, look what I'm wearing. Traditions aren't bad. Um, but sometimes these rules can come at the expense of knowing and loving God. And sometimes we can be really good at, at outwardly playing the part while inwardly our hearts are far from God. And I think this is going to be more and more of a problem as this culture becomes increasingly what's known as post-Christian, as less and less people go to church, as less and less people know Jesus, as less and less people accept um, the, 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 the values of Christianity, um, this is going to be a very hard trap for us not to fall into. One route for the church in this environment is to circle the wagons and to close up shop. I mean, not close up shop, but to, to, you know what I mean, to isolate ourselves from the world around us, to create boundaries and try to stay pure, to keep the people of God clean. But that is not possible. Where is the evil that lies within our own hearts? And so we have to be careful that we, we set up some sort of pure and holy society that completely ignores the fact that it is only God alone who can cleanse us, not our actions or our traditions. So we continue on. Jesus has, has he's rebuked the Pharisees. He's pretty much wiped away any possible appeal that they have to continuing these traditions, but he wants to show us more. He wants to show us that it's not just the traditions, but actually the law of God itself cannot heal us. It cannot cleanse us. The Pharisees' rules can't work because the problem isn't outside, it is within, as we have discussed. So verses 14 and 15 of chapter 7. Jesus called the people to him, so he gathers the crowd around, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defiles him. And then down to verse 21. For from within... Out of the heart of man, do you see the source of these things? These are coming from our hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. No one in this room is left untouched by that list. If you think you are, you need to reconsider. 
All of these things come from within. It's not somebody else's fault. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. The problem is inside of us. If we keep, if we keep completely pure, if we, don't, if, if we don't read one impure thing or, or, or look at one impure thing or hang out with one impure person, we will still, we will still have these problems in our hearts. The purpose of the purity laws in the Old Testament was not to keep evil out of the people of Israel, but to keep Israel from getting worse. God knew that if they didn't have the law, that they would not stop at murdering somebody. They wouldn't think twice about it. They would be just like the pagan cultures around them. Contrast that with the approach of the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, if we can keep the unclean out, then we'll keep our hearts pure. But the reality of the law is, your hearts aren't pure. There's nothing pure about your heart. The law can only restrain us the law can convict us, but it cannot fix us. And so we have Jesus, and he says, listen, what you put into your mouth, it's not going to make you unclean. You're already unclean. And it's what comes out of you that brings your impurity to light. And so really, it should come as no surprise to us that the Internet is being used now for evil purposes. That's not surprising. It should come as no surprise to us. Um, for instance, just take another contemporary example that you know the Duggars? Um, that a member of the, the Duggar family was harboring secret sin despite the fact that he was brought up in a good Christian family. That, that should not surprise us. And it should not surprise you that you have that secret sin in the depths of your heart that you can't quite shake. That you are constantly striving after something other than God. Despite your best intentions, you want to serve God, you want to love Him, but there, there's something else. And that's what you're going after. That shouldn't surprise us. It shouldn't surprise you that envy, pride, lust, and fear continue to lurk in your hearts despite the fact that you do all the right things that you go to church on Sunday, that you read your Bible, that you pray every morning. Even then, your heart is defiled. Obedience cannot give us a clean heart. The problem isn't what we do. The problem is who we are. And we need a clean heart to be cured. Thankfully, Jesus has a solution. Now, if you were um, a disciple, the sermon ends there, right? And you're like, wow, that's brutal. <laughs> Thanks, Tyler. But we know the end of the story, right? That Jesus has the solution. That in his, his, his time on earth, and especially in his crucifixion, his taking on the penalty of our defiled hearts onto his clean heart, and then his resurrection from the dead, um, we, we have that clean heart. Okay? And so two things are happening. The first one is this. When we know Jesus, when we confess our sins to Him, when we receive Him and agree to follow Him, He is giving us 
His clean heart. So when God looks down on us, and we're still wallowing in our own sinfulness, but when God looks on us and we know Jesus, He sees Jesus' heart in us. We might not feel that way. We might keep doing the bad things we've been doing for years and years, but when God looks down on you, He sees you clothed in the white robes of Jesus Christ. It's nothing you've done. It's no traditions you've kept. It's the clean heart of Jesus that washes away your sins. And then as we struggle with that, and as we own that, and as we remind ourselves again and again of the clean heart of Jesus Christ who died for us, then, then our hearts begin to change. Our hearts begin to change. They're not going to be perfected until you die, so don't get your hopes up. But they begin they begin to change. And often that change real, looks something like this. You know, you, you, you're following Jesus and you're, 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 you know, sins that you're struggling with maybe are, are going away. But the closer you get to God, the more you realize how far away you actually are. The closer you get to God, the more you realize how far away you actually are. And the more thankful you are that Jesus has given us his clean heart. So that's the solution to our defiled hearts, is the clean heart of Jesus Christ. Two things that you can take away with you today, then, from that. Number one, because Jesus has given his clean heart for us, you have the freedom to stop pretending. Okay? Hear me clearly. You have the freedom to stop pretending. You don't have to present yourself to this world as a perfect person anymore. Your house doesn't have to be perfectly clean. You're sometimes probably going to yell at your kids. I did that the other day. You're going to make mistakes. And if you don't know Jesus, what's your first, well, the first thing you want to do, even if you do know him, if you're like me, the first thing you want to do, you want to justify, right? Well, but this was going on, and this happened, and I didn't mean to, and this, and this, and that. But, but, but when you know Jesus Christ, just say, forgive me. I'm a sinner. You don't have to pretend anymore. Because Jesus Christ has died for you and washed away your sins. Freedom to stop pretending. And the final thing, I don't know. Freedom to stop behaving. You have the freedom to stop behaving. Um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he would say, sin boldly. That's not permission to sin, but it's permission to know that you have been forgiven. And it's also permission to stop focusing on your behavior, okay? The, the behavior is going to come. There's certain things that, that, that we want to do because we're Christians, but, but if we focus on the doing, we're going to lose sight of who God is and what He's done for us. So we have the freedom to stop focusing on our behavior and instead of start focusing on Jesus' heart and cultivating our own hearts to know Him and to love Him. And so let's, let's start there. Let's start on the heart of Jesus Christ, and these other things will come in line by all means. But if we're only focused on how we behave, then we're going to totally miss the boat on what Jesus has done for us. 
There's an implication to that, parents and grandparents. We've got to stop focusing on our kids' behavior all the time. We can't need, we can't teach them to love Jesus if the only thing we can focus on is behavior management. We'll teach them to be really good Pharisees. Can we cultivate in our children and our grandchildren a love of Christ? Can we focus on their hearts? And sharing Jesus with them. And when they misbehave, and they're going to, to forgive them. Or even better, when you misbehave, if you ask them for your forgiveness. How can we focus on cultivating hearts instead of behaviors in our children? Friends, that's where we are this morning. We come before God with defiled hearts. Praise the Lord for Jesus Christ who is cleansed us with his clean heart and I pray, I pray that that cleansing will slowly and surely take place in your life in your heart that you may know the love of Christ and you may share that love with this community and the world let us